she never expected those pictures to be sent out and they were and um, that was extremely embarrassing and so at this point you're dealing with a young lady who could even become suicidal Welcome to another episode of Law and Church, a podcast for church leaders. My name is Brian Fitton. I'm here with Josh Bryant, Managing Attorney at Church General Counsel and an ordained pastor. Today on our show, we have our guest, Chris Roller. So, Josh, tell us a little bit about Chris. So, Chris is a good friend of mine. We served on staff together at First Baptist Rogers for several years. Chris has got 20 years uh, in student ministry, and that's uh, a little bit unheard of. Uh, uh, in talking to Chris, one of the things he said about that 20 years, he said, uh, yeah, most student ministers are paroled by now, but here I am still in, in student ministry. <laughs> uh, and so, But he's got a lot of experience. Uh, he is integral in getting super summer Arkansas uh, off the ground and and getting it planned with other student ministers across the state. Um, right now, he leads a student ministry that consists of two associates, and so he's got a team that he supervises. Uh, but he's got dozens of volunteers, hundreds of students, lots of stuff going on. They go on overseas mission trips and local mission trips and all sorts of activities during the week. Uh, he has a heart for students and really understands some of those cultural forces that are causing legal issues for both teenagers and for student ministries and student pastors across the country. So he's, he's a really great person to talk to about some of these issues. Absolutely. It's a great episode and an interview. And so what are kind of some of the things that we need to highlight, um, you know, for not just for our church leaders, but also maybe parents, myself being you know, a parent of a teenager who's in a youth group, you know, what are some of those things that we need to look out for as well? Yeah. You know, Ultimately, the student ministry probably is the area of the church that generates the most risk of liability. Um, you know, they like to do crazy, stupid stuff sometimes. <laughs> I mean, ropes courses without the ropes. Uh, you know, there have been late days and, and, you know, anybody driving the boats doing everything they can to throw these teenagers off of the, mm-hmm. the inner tube that they're pulling. Um, fireworks wars, that's been in the news here lately. Um, I had one church that was doing a food fight full of full cans of food. Uh, there were cans of food flying through the air um, and, and kids getting hurt. I mean, I've seen all this stuff, but uh, students also bring a whole lot uh, into the church in a very real spiritual battle over that teenager's life. I mean, if Satan can win them as a teenager, he can win them for life. Uh, and so there's a battle going on and they're going to bring a lot of baggage from that battle into the church. Uh, you know, one of the things that we're going to talk about a whole lot uh, in this episode is sexting um, because it's prevalent among teenagers. It's happening all the time, Um, and we're going to hear some things about what that actually is from a legal perspective, and we're also going to see how that's being used to blackmail other students and to bully students and some of the legal liabilities that can come up from that. Uh, We're going to talk about some of the things that we have to talk about uh, is volunteers who have sexual conversations and sexual contact with students. We've got to talk about how to protect our churches from that. Uh, Kids are bringing pornography use into the church. There's abuse issues that come up. Students, uh, student pastors and ministers and leaders need to understand uh, the mandatory reporting laws in their state. We're going to talk about all of these things. So if you're a student minister or student volunteer, uh, certainly you're going to want to pay attention to this. But you know what? It doesn't stop there. Senior pastors, church administrators, you need to know these things because uh, you're ultimately responsible for your church. You're probably an officer of your church. And if something goes wrong, you can be held equally responsible. And so we need to all make sure that we know what these issues are, how it brings legal issues and intersects with the law, uh, 
uh, and ultimately what we're going to do about it and how to protect our churches. I think that's great, Josh. And this is a great topic to discuss. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump into the interview right now. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Law and Church Podcast. My name is Josh Bront. I'm the managing attorney here at Church General Council. Today, we are thrilled to have Chris Roller with us. Chris is my student pastor. We've been uh, served on staff together uh, at First Baptist in Rogers, Arkansas, uh, and uh, fought over space and uh, leaders and volunteers <laughs> and the, the works. And so Chris has got 20 years of student ministry uh, uh, on his uh, resume. Uh, he's been all over the state of Arkansas, works with Super Summer and does all sorts of uh, other camps and things like that, works with uh, students. And so he is well-versed in some of the issues we're going to talk about today in terms of how the law intersects student ministry. Uh, and well, I'll tell you, we're, we're kind of entering into a really strange age. This is kind of the second generation, uh, I suppose. Uh, maybe it's the first generation that's really come up with technology in their hands, literally in the cradle. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's probably bringing a whole lot into uh, student ministry in which th there are just opportunities for the law to intersect what you do on a daily basis. And so let me just start out with our first question here. What have you seen or how have you seen the law intersect your student ministry uh, more frequently over the last several years? Or what are some what are some issues that you've seen come up? Sure. And I, it's a great question because I think if you would have asked me this question probably even 10 years ago, I would have a totally different answer than what I do now. And I think it's interesting you bring up that students that are in in ministry, but the students who are in high school, everything right now have honestly had uh, not just technology at their fingertips, but probably, I mean, now where five years ago, nobody had unlimited data. Now everybody's got unlimited data on their phones and social media is, and it's just huge. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, it was MySpace. Now you ask a student about MySpace, they don't even know what it is anymore. Um, but now with Snapchat, with uh, Facebook, with Instagram, and um, just, it seems like there's new stuff coming up every day. Um, we have got a situation to where not just is technology at their fingertips, but pornography is at their fingertips. Mm -hmm. uh, morality is now something that is an option. It's not something that's expected anymore. And so what I'm seeing a lot of students deal with legally uh, beyond just the old days of, you know, getting caught drinking or getting a speeding ticket when they turned 16 in their car is now they're dealing with some legal aspects that are felonies because of their, their phones, because of the technology that's available to them. Um, just recently dealt with a student who, who uh, was producing pornography, for lack of better words, mm -hmm. and got caught. Um, and so that's kind of what we're dealing with. And then the other side of that as well, the other thing we're dealing with is the not necessarily the producing of pornography, but the transporting of it. And I'm not talking about pornography they're finding offline. I'm talking about the pornography that other students are sending them that is underage, that is um, involves a lot of different things that not just are illegal in the producing of them, but in the legal of distributing of them. And so now uh, students are, when they're getting caught, they're facing felony charges at 15 years old. Yeah. Felony charges that, you know, 10 years ago was the creepy 30-year-old guy in his mom's basement that was producing stuff. Now it's, it's students that aren't even thinking about what they're doing anymore. And so they're taking pictures of classmates, sending it to their buddy. And at that point in time, it seems innocent, never going to get caught. 
all it takes is one person who's now saying, okay, hey, he's got a picture of that girl that goes to fifth period science with us naked. And when they come pull that phone up, then it's like, uh oh, you produced it, you distributed it, and now you're a carrier of it. I mean, there's three felonies right there. Yeah. And so that's a long way from what it was when me and you were in high school and it was getting caught out in the woods with your buddies drinking or, you know, getting caught reckless driving or, or getting mm-hmm. caught doing something that seemed big at the time. And that was nothing compared to the legal things that students are getting involved in today. Yeah. So, you know, specifically what you reference is, is sexting. Is that the, the, the terminology for it now is where they're sending these yep. naked pictures of themselves? I think what a lot of people don't understand is when that is a child, that is child pornography. Correct. Uh, that's the child pornography that people go to prison for for a very long time. Um, and it, it what what students sometimes don't understand is is that just because you send it doesn't mean it disappears. That's right. Um, and, and matter of fact, even if you do a Snapchat, it doesn't mean it disappears. Uh, and and certainly if you send it by text message or any other means of transmission, uh, it's out there uh, and it's going to stay out there. Um, and you never know who's going to get their hands on it. Uh, and it could end up in, you know, some of these serial uh, child pornographers databases um, uh, anywhere in the world. And so... That's a really, really dangerous thing. You know, one of the things that I know you and I've talked about is as we've kind of tr- tried to help train parents and volunteers on on steps to take and what to do in the event that they catch something like this. I mean, ultimately, uh, certainly the first thing I think anybody should do under those circumstances immediately confiscate the phone and take it straight to the police department. Um, you don't want to be in a situation where law enforcement comes into possession of your phone or a that child's phone under other circumstances and then finds that child pornography. In fact, that's one of the things in the, in the law has has kind of put a little bit of a damper on this. But, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, in a former life when I was doing criminal litigation, uh, I would have a client who would get busted on drug charges um, and they'd come in and hire me to do that. But in continuing their investigation, law enforcement searching their phone found child pornography and they'd pick up a child pornography charge. Yeah. And so it was one of those things where, you know, they had it on their phone. They didn't get busted for it until they got busted for something else. And so what we don't want is parents or volunteers or students even getting busted for something else like a speeding ticket or drinking with their friends or whatever. Um, and then having this stuff on their phone and picking up. Uh, that child pornography charge, and so if if the if somebody will just immediately take that phone to the police station, saying, "Look, here, I just got that. There's the timestamp on it. I want you, police officer, please get rid of that message. Please make a, a, a report of this. That way, that you've got a paper trail that kind of is you're able to prove, if necessary, uh, that you didn't." retain uh, child pornography. You immediately took it to law enforcement, like you were supposed to, and that's going to alleviate that criminal liability there. Um, uh, so it's, it's certainly, certainly important. It's certainly a, a big deal that's coming up. And, and, you know, as we continue to live in a world that's just hyper-sexualized and where, like you said, morality is an option, this is just going to continue to continue to be an issue. Well, I think the other thing too, when you, when you think about this, a lot of times we think about the person who has the possession of that child pornography. What we don't think about is who is in that picture. Yeah, that's true. And that's the other side of it. And it's and like this, case I just recently had to kind of deal with, um, I had both in our student ministry. I had the guy who produced it, and I had the young lady 
who the pictures were taken of. And it was a weird situation, but we were dealing with her and, and realizing she knew not only had somebody seen her naked, but other people had even seen her naked. You know, there, there was a situation to where she never expected those pictures to be sent out and they were. And um, that was extremely embarrassing. And so at this point, you're dealing with a young lady who could even become suicidal. And the bullying stuff that we're seeing going on in schools and so forth is becoming a legal aspect in this as well because somebody's hey, I've got this picture of this person. I want to just humiliate them. Well, hey, you sent a naked picture of somebody, you just humiliated them. And like you said, those don't go away. That sticks with them forever. You can't ever get those moments back. And there's, I mean, you can blackmail people with that. You, uh, you know, that, that happens a lot in domestic relations cases where, you know, husband and wife will do something and then one part, you know, they'll video normal marital activities or whatever. Um, but then when the marriage falls apart, one person holds that over the other. Uh, yeah. and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put this out there if you don't do X, Y, or Z in this divorce proceeding. And so uh, if it happens with adults, you can, Sort of certainly guarantee that it's probably going to happen with kids as well. Um, you know, and you know that's another kind of nuance, interesting area of the law where it's tried to de- uh, the law is still developing. Is you know, can you um, be held criminally liable for bullying somebody to the point that they commit suicide? Right. Uh, you know, there's uh, I don't remember exactly what state it was in, but the case where this uh, girl kept telling her boyfriend, "Yeah, go ahead and kill yourself," and she was really bullying him. Uh, and she was tried as an adult and criminally convicted, and it's still working its way through the appellate courts as to whether she should uh, be held criminally liable for that. But um, you know that that is certainly a big deal. Uh, so let me switch topics just a little bit, talking about that bullying. What are some things uh, that you're having to do as a student pastor to try and and limit bullying within? In the student ministry, yeah, that's a hard one um, because bullying comes in many different forms. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, you spend enough time with students, you're going to see some of those. Some of those forms would be a verbal of, of bullying, kind of like what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen students tell another student before, "Hey, you know, why don't you just go kill yourself?" And and it sometimes it might be joking, but sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's interesting you brought that case up. Uh, the other type of bullying that we see is a physical type of bullying. Um, and that, to me, the physical side of it is a lot easier because uh, in our student ministry, we have tons of adults who come and volunteer. They're in different places all over our student area so that if somebody ever did try to physically bully somebody, we can nip that in the bud pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, the emotional and, and mental side of the verbal type of bullying is a little bit harder, especially with social media. And I'll be honest with you, most bullying that we see in student ministry now doesn't happen on any of our campuses. Most of it happens on Facebook or Instagram, Snapchat, or whatever uh, other type of social media those students are using. The bad part of that is, and you would say, well, that's great. They're not happening on your campus. Well, here's the bad part of that. It starts on social media, and so often it ends up inside of our doors because those people go to school together. They go to church together sometimes. Um, I have even seen a student show up at church with the specific idea of, hey, I've been picking on this person at school. I want to go see what they're like at church. And the type of person that would have a heart to do that, I mean, that just blows my mind. But it's happening. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, I heard parents say, well, I'm just going to take my kid out of church. I was like, well, okay, do that. But understand, we're talking uh, Wednesday night and Sundays, and um, they're going to school five days a week with those same people. Yeah. 
So what I keep telling students is instead of saying, okay, we're just going to avoid bullying altogether, let's learn how to deal with it. How do we address it? How do yeah. we address it as parents? And um, I have a 10-year-old daughter, and uh, this past year had a kid in her class that was bullying her. And so for the first time as a dad, I got to go address it. You mm-hmm. know, And it's interesting as you do that because as you go talk to teachers, a lot of times teachers don't understand what's going on behind their backs. And, and likewise, even as a student pastor, there's times things are going on that I don't catch. And, and I'm always telling students, look, if you want us to help you walk through this, you got to let us know. Come talk to us. Feel the freedom to come talk to us. Understand, I'm not going to throw you under the bus. I'm not going to go to that bully and say, hey, you stop it. That's, that's not going to happen. But I want to talk to you. I want to I walk with you through the processes of how to, first of all, mend a relationship if that's what needs to happen. Or get as far from that person and let that person know, hey, this isn't really cool. This isn't how you do it. And if it gets bad enough, you know, I'll, I'll gladly go with you to the school administration if that's where it's happening and, and figure out how to fix this problem. So a lot of it's just helping those students be open about the bullying that's going on so that we can address it, but then also being willing to uh, just help them through the process of fixing this bullying. And every case is a little bit different. Uh, we dealt with a case last year, had a young man uh, that came into our, our student ministry, and um, I had the whole thing on video, which was really interesting watching how this, this went down. But uh, he just decided he was going to bully a couple girls. And it was around a pool table in our game room, um, pushed one of the girls, another guy stepped in so fast and another guy who was bigger than him. And all of a sudden the problem was ended right then. Now here's what was so cool about that. Students came to me and said, Hey, this is going on. It's like, all right. So he pulled the video footage, saw exactly what was going on. Everything that uh, was told to me happened was hundred percent truth. Had it went to the parents, showed it to them and said, Hey, here's a problem we're having. The parents were both starstruck, had no idea their son was doing this, but admitted we're struggling with some things at home. And what I have found with a lot of bullies in student ministry and even in, in working in the schools, a lot of them, that stuff is happening. It, it's stuff that's going on at home. It's an insecurity. It's a, it's a uh, idea that if I go and pick on this student, then I'm bigger than them. I'm better than them. And so everything I'm being told at home about myself, I don't have to worry about because at school, I'm somebody different. Nobody's going to mess with me. Yeah. So when you can start to realize that in a bully, and, and hopefully in these situations when students come to me, I can work with them as well, the bully side of it too. Hey, why are you picking on people? Why do you feel the need to be mean to somebody? Do you think this helps you make friends? Because, you know, a lot of the bullies don't really have friends. They may have people around them. And some of that's because, you know, you, you keep your friends close type deal because they don't want to pick it on them. But a lot of it goes down to some insecurities that if you can sit down and talk with them about and work with them, work with their families, Man, it's amazing how that can change a bully's life too. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, and I'm sure there's probably a lot of listeners out there going, this is the Law and Church podcast. Why are we talking about these things? And ultimately, what we don't want to do when we talk about bullying or when we talk about sexting and we come into the to, to knowledge uh, that these things are going on, the one thing we cannot do is nothing. Right. Uh, we've got to do something. And from a legal perspective, when when you know, the church has knowledge or should have knowledge. It's not, we can't bury our heads in the sand either, but if we know or should know that something is going on and we do nothing about it, uh, then that opens up the church to some liability for, for right. just an omission uh, and of not doing anything, uh, especially if a kid is actually harmed, heaven forbid, a student commits suicide and the church yeah. knew that this bullying was going on uh, or that somebody was 
sending, you know, naked photographs of them to other people and humiliating them. And we knew what was going on and we didn't do anything about it. Now that gets us to a point to where the aggrieved family not only probably walks away from the church, which is first and foremost, the the biggest problem right. uh, there. Um, but not only do they do that, it's it's at least possible that they sue the church uh, right. for, for not stepping in and doing something about it. And so we've got to act when we know those things are going, and I'm glad you can provide some insight into, into how, how we can do that. Um, so talk to me real quick about some of the things that you're doing, kind of moving back to the sexual piece of, uh, of the puzzle. What are some things that you're doing to try and prevent volunteers from having conversations uh, or, or having any kind of, well, not say conversations, but having sexual contact with a student outside of the church. And we're seeing this more and more uh, where pastors and ministers and church leaders uh, who are at least paid staff are a little bit more vigilant uh, in not uh, engaging in these types of, of behaviors and making sure that there's accountability so that if there's an allegation, hey, you know, there were two people in the room and that person's un related and they can vouch for me that that didn't happen. And, you know, we kind of set these guardrails that make sure we've got some evidence, um, as it were. Um, But I think a lot of times volunteers are not that vigilant. Uh, And I I think what we're seeing is an increase, at least what I'm seeing, is a decrease in the number of paid staff who are being accused of something and an increase in the number of volunteers who are being accused of having a sexual relationship with students. So what are some things that you're doing to try and stave some of that off? Well, I think first of all, and you've been in the church world, you've worked on the church side of things. So you know how true this is. It is extremely tempting to get in a situation to where you need more help and you're like, I'll settle. I'll train this person to do what I need them to do. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to use them. Maybe this isn't the best person, but I'm going to use them. Mm-hmm. And I think, first of all, as a pastor, you have to get that out of your mind. You're not going to settle for somebody. You're not going to go find somebody who's really not going to be good at all and decide how much we're going to train them how to go teach the Bible. You need to find the right people. So one of the things that we do is we work really hard as, as we're thinking about recruiting. And right now, it's July, and, and we're in the uh, recruiting process right now and, and almost done with our recruiting process for our uh, next school year of volunteers. But one of the things that we're watching is we want people who are passionately in love with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we pray, God, can you just give me somebody who just who just loves students? And, and that's great. We want people who love students, but but... First and foremost, I want somebody passionately in love with Jesus. And I think back to what John says. He says, you'll know them by the fruits they bear. And you think about that, like you should be able to spot somebody who's passionately in love with Jesus. So when we start looking at recruiting and we start looking at, at who we want interacting with our students, that's, that's the first and foremost what we want. Now, the other side of that is I've met people who are passionately in love with student, or with Jesus, but hate students. I've seen that before. They're scared to death of students. It's like, that's not who I want either. Uh, And I pray often, God, would you give me somebody who's passionately in love with you and has a heart to go reach our students for Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how God answers that. But through that, we are trying to be very, very careful who we ask. I don't usually do blanket invitations to come serve in the student ministry. Now, because of the size of our church, I want people to know, hey, if you want to volunteer, Here's some ways you can do it. But at the same time, even if somebody says, hey, I want to come serve, I don't just open the door wide open. We're going to go sit down. We're going to have dinner because I want to get to know you a little bit. I want, I, want to, to, in a, I want to make sure that you're not somebody who I'm going to have some red flags on from the very, very beginning of it. 
And I pray a lot too. God, would you give me discernment? I want to know if this person is supposed to be in our student ministry, I want to know. But if they're not, please let me know that too, because I do not want to bring this person in to come and to be a part of my students' lives. And you got to understand too, it's teenagers from that 12 years old to really 19 years old. I mean, they are, there's so much in their life that's going to form and structure them for the rest of their lives. One bad volunteer can mess that entire thing up. And likewise, in your ministry, I mean, we've got 60-something volunteers that serve with us every week. It would just take one to destroy the entire ministry. So be extremely careful in that. Uh, one of the things that we started doing at First Baptist Rogers is Ministry Safe, and I'm a big proponent of it. And understand that Ministry Safe is not just a background check. It's not just a screening process, but it's also training our volunteers to watch for another volunteer who could be somebody like what you're talking about. And so when you get more eyes looking for that type of situation, there's more people watching on what's going on inside of your ministry. And when I first took the ministry safe class, I was uh, took it through the Arkansas Baptist State Convention because we do a lot of work with Super Summer. And I remember texting a bunch of guys and I said, well, you sorry, Joker, stay away from my kids because I don't trust any of you anymore. <laughs> and uh, just kind of joking with them. But and the reality is, is, as you study this and understand, you know, what you need to be watching for, it will make you skeptical. And that's okay. It's okay to be thinking about these things all the time. It's okay to be looking at somebody going, are you really investing in a student because you love them? Or are you some creep who's trying to get into their lives to do something that's wrong? Yeah. And so, um, and that doesn't mean I don't trust people. I trust people. And I, I love our volunteers. We have a great volunteer staff right now. And honestly, there's not anybody that I question. And if I did, they wouldn't be there. Yeah. And that's the other side of it too. Uh, don't be afraid to step in and ask some seriously hard questions. Don't be afraid to hold them accountable. When, um, when volunteers come on with us, that's one of the first things I tell them is, look, I want you to understand as a pastor of the student ministry, my job foremost in this church is to protect every student in the student ministry. I said, I'm going to protect you as a volunteer, but I'm going to protect them too. So don't be, don't be surprised if I walk up and ask you a seriously hard question. If I see something that's worth asking, I'm coming and asking you this question. It's going to be out of love. And I'm not going to just accuse you of something without talking to you first, but, but you need to understand that's the way it is. And I think as pastors, we have that right. Yeah. You know, we're the guys who are in charge of, of recruiting, equipping, and training adults to be a part of our student ministry. We have the right to go and hold them accountable. We have the right to ask them some seriously hard questions. Um, and so if you can do those two things, that accountability side of it, and, and then also the, the weeding out of who you want in your ministry and who you don't, a lot of those problems go away. Yeah. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you, there's not a single human being that's above making a mistake. Yeah. Not a single human being. I heard somebody say here recently, he said, you know, he said, you're just one decision away from being an absolute idiot. And he's right. Yep. Yeah. And so at that point, you have to understand, too, that none of us are above mistakes. None of us are above messing up. So we need to be praying daily. Yeah. God, guard my heart. Guard my soul. Guard my spirit that when I make decisions, they are godly decisions. And I encourage my adults to do the same thing. Yeah. You know, you need to be praying this because you understand you got a target on your back. As a volunteer, as a pastor, you know, if you're doing anything within the church, you got a big target on your back because Satan does not want us doing that. That's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, and what a lot of people don't understand, I'm going to take it a little bit further. Not only do you have a right to ask those hard questions and hold your volunteer accountable, you actually have a responsibility. Yeah, uh, That's a legal responsibility. Um, and but Now, first and foremost, it's a Christian responsibility. Yeah. We're to hold each other accountable. We are to go to brothers and sisters in sin and rescue them back uh, as best we can and, and pull them back into the fold. 
Um, but it's also a legal responsibility yeah, in, in employment law. And it's really not employment law. It's agency law. We call it respondeat superior. It means the, the superior response uh, is the Latin translation of that. And basically it means that if an employee hurts somebody on the job, the employer is the one liable, not the employee. All right. Well, a lot of people think, well, because we don't pay volunteers, that doesn't apply. And they could not be more wrong. Right. They volunteer, um, but they work for the church. Yep. Um, and there's actually a statute out there. Uh, it's a federal federal law called the Volunteer Protection Act. It was signed under the Clinton administration, uh, which basically says, uh, hey, in case anybody was wondering, we're just going to go ahead and shore this up that nonprofit organizations are responsible for the actions of their volunteers, not the volunteers themselves. Uh, and, and so uh, folks need to understand that in as much as a church could be responsible for a student pastor having a sexual relationship with a student, that church is going to be equally responsible for a volunteer yeah. having a sexual relationship with a student. Um, and, and so it is, it is incumbent upon churches. You have to ask those questions. You've got to have that level of accountability and you've got to have the processes in place. You know, we, we preach on process a whole lot, um, at church general council and on the, on the lawn church podcast, you've got to have the processes in place, that systematic process that you go through every time you do things the same way you vet people the same way every time, uh, you know, where you have the conversations with them, where, uh, you had to do the background checks, you go through the ministry safe training. It's a process that you, you just turn over and over and over again, just like the belt and your the engine in your car turns over and over and over again to drive your car where it wants to go or where you want it to go. You've got to have those same processes driving your ministry where God's leading it. Uh, and, and so you, you, you've got to have those systems in place. Uh, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, too, I think that those guidelines that are there, too, for instance, um, you know, we tell any adult coming in our ministry at, at any point in time, you're never alone with a student. Yeah. And it used to be a student of the opposite sex. Yep. I'm not that way anymore, Josh. I I tell you, man, I'm to the point now you don't get along with a student. It doesn't matter what gender they are. Um, And, you know, and that's just a guideline, but I also go and tell other adults, Hey, look, it's our responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen. For instance, on Wednesday night, you got, you know, 250 students up in our student area and they're all leaving and, and the adults are starting to kind of scatter out as it's getting down to five or 10 students. Well, all the adults leave but one, at some point, that one adult is there with that one student whose parents are the last ones to come pick them up. So we have a responsibility in setting those guidelines, but also helping and assisting one another to make sure those guidelines don't get uh, in, a, in a spot where they can't get out of. So Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's absolutely right. And that, that doesn't just really apply just to student ministry either. That can, that's, that's across the spectrum. Right. When you're doing pastoral biblical counseling, you don't do it one-on-one right. uh, with somebody of the opposite sex, especially. And I think we're going to get to a day and age probably where you don't do it one-on-one with anybody. Right. Um, you know, uh, and you try to have either group sessions or you try to have, uh, you know, small group type stuff. You know, when I was going through my pastoral counseling classes in seminary, one of the things they always said was, you know, the first thing that you need to do when you're counseling somebody is get them into a small group because that's where the most radical transformation is going to take place. Is not in the pastor's office, not in the counseling office. Uh, the most radical transformation is going to happen in biblical community. Yeah. Uh, and so you've got to get them into a small group or a life group or Sunday school class, or whatever. Uh, so I think all that's important um, it, where you, you've got to have those types of accountability checks for sure. So, Chris, what are some other uh, areas uh, where you've you 
found yourself having to think somewhat legally in making a decision uh, in your student ministry? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I am having happen more and more in the last probably um, probably last five years has been the number of students who come to me um, with abuse and that have been either sexually abused abused or mentally abused and having to call the uh, hotline. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that, you know, the biggest question always comes to my mind and I've called you before saying, Hey, this student just said this, um, do I need to call it in? And I think for me as a, as a student pastor, um, it's one of those things where I have to constantly ask myself, all right, am I doing my due diligence as a student pastor to make sure I'm reporting the right things and, uh, and following through the way I need to. Uh, one of the biggest things that I'm also seeing is a number of young men who are coming to me saying, Hey, I am having a pornography problem. I don't want to, I don't know what to do to fix it. Yeah. And you would think, well, that's not a legal is- issue. That's a moral issue. Or issue. Well, that's okay. On the front end. Sure. I, I can go with you on that one. Yep. The problem is what that ends up causing in the long run. Um, you know, we know anybody who studies any psychology knows what a pornography addiction does to a person and, and how, and even God says himself, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to give them over to a, uh, just a, a mindset of that if they're not careful, yeah. you know, and just, and just let them go with it. And you think that's a dangerous ground to be in, yeah. you know, when you talk about debauchery and you talk about uh, those types of things in your life. And so uh, one of the first things I do in those situations, when a student comes to me and says, all right, we need to tell your parents. And of course you ought to see the look on their faces. Oh my gosh, they're going to kill me. It's like, <laughs> they're not going to kill you because you know, you have a problem and you want help. Yeah. That's a lot different than getting caught. You, you know, you got the issue. You want help. So a lot of times when we go to parents, say, hey, look, um, you know, Joe has come to me and, and he's struggling with this. I mean, I want to walk with you all through this. You know, I, I want to help you as a family through this. A lot of times parents will, will stop. And, it, and there's a lot of tears in those situations because their perfect little young man isn't so perfect. And, um, you know, they, they a lot of times will work with you in that. And so and, and to me, at that point, there's some legal responsibility that goes away at that point because the parents now know. That's right. Um, and the parents are now walking with them. And, and that responsibility to help walk this student through this comes off the student pastor and onto the mom and dad, too. Um, now, at the same time, you know, I, I'll always tell the parents, hey, don't freak out. Yeah. Don't panic. Don't don't get mad. Don't go in their room and take everything out of their room. Um, at the same time, let's get the phone out of the room at night. Let's you know. Let's let's figure out where the source is. Maybe it's not the phone, but let's figure out where the source is and let's, let's get it back. Let's get it out of their their hands. Let's get it uh, out of a time when they can even go and look at this. Yeah. And a lot of times, when you tell parents that they start to think about. Okay, well, um, he does sleep with the phone in his room every night, or he sleeps with the computer in his room every night, and and so and. But what's even scarier in that situation it's not just young men anymore um we've had some young ladies that have dealt with our, our girls associate in our student ministry and, and came to her and i always tell her it's like hey first thing you're gonna do is you're gonna call mom and dad yeah get them involved in this and so that helps a lot but again i think the, the probably the biggest legal thing that we have right now is what to call in mm-hmm. what not to call in um because the last thing i want to see happen is a kid or student get abused in some way that i should have called in and didn't yeah um because first of all we didn't get the kid help Right. You know, they're needing help. They're crying out for help. We didn't get them help. And secondly, all of a sudden now I've got uh, the state looking at me going, why didn't you call this in? This yeah. was your job as a mandatory reporter. Why didn't you call this in? And, and I'll tell you in, in the last, um, really in the last eight years, I have honestly lost count of how many things I've had to call in. Yeah. Um, I worked on the other side of the state for four years before I was here and um, dealt with a lot of abuse cases. 
some involving family members, some involving uh, boyfriends and girlfriends, some of them that were not sexual at all. Some of them were, were physical uh, being beaten. Some of them was neglect and, and different things like that. And um, we moved to Northwest Arkansas, even being up here, I've had several I've had to call in that uh, I didn't really expect to see in Northwest Arkansas, but it, but it's, it happens everywhere. Yeah. And so uh, as a student pastor, it's my job to protect my students. And one way I have to do that is watch for those moments when I have to call them in yeah, as well. Absolutely. You know, the mandated reporter issue is going to become a bigger and bigger issue, especially as more as, as churches are subject to more scrutiny, specifically in this regard, talking about abuse in the church as you know, the Houston Chronicle article that came out yeah. uh, a few months ago. And, and I mean, and, you know, the stuff going on within Catholic circles uh, for years now. Um, and it's not just happening in Catholic and Baptist circles, it's happening everywhere. Uh, but as churches become subject to more scrutiny, um, clergy people who are supposed to be calling this in as a mandated reporter and people who volunteer with, with uh, minors who are, are mandated reporters are supposed to be calling this in. If you don't do it, there are criminal ramifications uh, yeah. that you can be held criminally liable for that. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's absolutely uh, imperative, you, you know, and couple of things I'd say. Number one, we've got a resource at Church General Council, uh, and it's, right now it's just specific to Arkansas, but we're constantly trying to add other mandated reporting states in uh, so that others can can look at it, but it's a decision tree. Uh, and, you know, we're, we get calls all the time asking us those very questions. Hey, I just got a quick question. Do I need to call this in? Here's what I know. Um, but, you know, if you had something at your fingertips where you can go and and just answer some questions and a computer spits out an answer uh, saying, yes, you should call this in or no, you shouldn't. Uh, I think that can certainly help. And, and certainly even then you need to err on the side of if your gut's telling you that this is going on, you need to call it in. So mandated reporting is a big deal. Um, you know, and the thing on, on pornography use in student ministry, what I see a lot of student pastors doing is, is with great hearts wanting to help uh, students be held accountable uh, they'll get on this filtering software, this accountability software, uh, where they'll start getting browsing histories. Mm. And that can put you in a little bit of trouble if you start getting a kid's browser history. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world. You just need to make sure you've got proper protections in place, that that data is secure, it's private, that nobody can get to it. And we could be here for a long time talking about data security, but we won't do that. Won't won't uh, won't bore everybody with data security. But you've got to keep that stuff certainly confidential, and you need to make sure you've got parents' permission to uh, to serve in that capacity. So well, I'll tell you too. I think a lot of that um, is the parents' job. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I tell parents quite often, you need to have your kid's password to their phone. Uh, you need to be. You need to go look at it. Yep. And like the situation we dealt with here recently with a young man who was, who was producing child pornography, that's exactly what happened. We had a dad who cared enough to walk in and go look at his computer. And, and he did a little bit of searching. Yep. Uh, he didn't just take a glance at, oh, my kid's good, and, and put it down and walk away. He, he did a little bit of looking, actually found uh, the stuff in the emails that were he had sent himself and so forth. And um, so there's, there's a responsibility to families to go look at a phone. Now, as a student pastor... There's there's a little bit where I have to kind of teach some families. Hey, here's where to go look. Yeah, and uh, and I I'm not the most tech savvy guy. I'm trying to at least keep up with these types of things to help families. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I do not uh, get on. I, I don't do the filtering thing where students uh, report to me on that. Um, kind of because of what you said. Mm -hmm. And that at the same time, I mean, we have a large student ministry. It would be very difficult because I would end up with you know, 40 or 50 that would say, hey, can you help hold me accountable? And there's just a point to where 
it would become overwhelming. Yeah. Um, but for mom and dad, you're paying for that phone. You are uh, paying for that student's food and lodging and everything else. Hey, you know what? You got a right to go look at what you want because that's your property. Yeah. And um, so it's, and a lot of parents we're seeing are starting to do that. Um, the thing to be careful of in those situations, and we can get on a long technology uh, discussion, but we're starting to see students have burner phones mm-hmm. to where um, they're hidden phones that, you know, they may throw in their closet or something like that, that may have Wi-Fi access. Some students I've even seen that have activated the phones um, to where they can do what they want. So just encourage parents, if you'll be involved in your student's life, and I mean really be involved have a relationship with your student. Have a uh, time that you just spend investing in your family. A lot of these issues you either come to light or will never happen. Yeah. And, you know, we're finding in, um, I know LifeWay just did a study about, you know, what helps a student retain in church. And one of the number one things that you see helping a student retain is um, the mom and dad intentionally spending daily time in God's word with them, investing in their child. And I think as parents invest that technology thing where you're also keeping an eye on that and, and you're encouraging your student. And um, if they do make a mistake, you're not freaking out, but you're getting them help. Man, I'm telling you, a lot of these things will start to go away. Yeah. Unfortunately, we live in a world to where a lot of families are pulling back from how much time they're spending together. And um, I think that's why we're starting to see so much increase in some of these sexual things that we've been talking about today, too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we here pray for our student ministries, pray for our churches all the time. We're going to continue to do that. Uh, I think this is certainly probably one of the bigger areas in which churches face some liability is is through that student ministry. I think it's where Satan's going to be attacking our churches uh, and uh, certainly a place where we need to remain vigilant. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you being on. It's good to be here. Thank you. All right. Wow, Josh. Uh, you know, myself as a parent of a of a teenager in the church, uh, that was just some great, great information from uh, from Chris and and just really some great topics that you guys discussed. But what are kind of some of your final or last thoughts on this? You know, this is a longer episode than we're typically going to do, but there's so much information and so much going on that we really needed to pay attention to. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that we touched on that I felt like we kind of need to follow up on a little bit uh, is talking about vetting volunteers. Uh, and how we go through that process of doing that, and and ultimately it is a process that there 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 needs to be a uh, a machine in place, a system in place by which we recruit and talk to and uh, research and do background checks and follow up on these volunteers, and not just stopping when they get to the point where you're putting them in charge of a life group or some activity within the student ministry. We've got to take that even a step further. And how do you continue to provide liability? liability? How do you continue to provide accountability for that? How do you continue uh, to oversee and shepherd those people who ultimately are going to be in a situation where there could be temptations, uh, where there could be situations where they're drug into a spiritual battle over that teenager's life? Uh, and, and so we, we need pastors, we need uh, church leaders who are going to be right there ready to go and shepherd uh, these people as well. One of the best things they can do from a legal perspective is that as you're vet- these volunteers. Make sure that you send yourself emails regarding your conversations with them or find some way to document these conversations. Uh, Ultimately, if you even if you properly vet a person, 
uh, as a student leader, and then they have some sort of sexual contact with a student, if you don't have evidence that you've talked to that person and that you explain to them what the rules are and why they can't have contact with a student outside of church uh, and, and why they need to have some accountability in place and so forth, if you haven't documented that, then it's really of, of no value. Uh, you've got to be able to show a court that you did everything you could possibly do. And so as you're having those conversations, do something as simple as sending yourself an email so that there is some sort of record of, hey, I talked to this person, we went over the rules, um, we, we talked about any possible temptations, we talked about whether they have issues uh, or struggles with pornography, we've talked about um, you know our expectations in terms of purity and, and ethical conduct and biblical morality. Uh, send yourself that email uh, and just remind yourself of that conversation so that we can use it later if necessary. Today's featured resource for church leaders is Go Rogue X. If you are looking to reach your congregation outside of Sunday mornings, Go Rogue X will help you get there with live service broadcasting and content creation. They will consult with your team on equipment and training to make sure you have the best quality broadcast. They also handle repurposing of your weekly Sunday sermons into a blog, podcast, YouTube video, as well as bite-sized content for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Visit GoRogueX.com for more information. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Law & Church. Make sure you check out LawAndChurch.com for all the resources, show notes, links. Everything is available for you there. And if you'd like to connect with us, go over to Facebook.com, search the Church Esquire Club. There's all sorts of opportunities for you there. And thanks so much for joining us. We will see you next week.